All right, everybody have a seat. I'm Chaplain Lantigua. Chaplain Lantigua. Can you say that? Thumbs up. Mm, felt that. Did you feel it? Yeah, Mufasa. Right. That's Captain Rafael Lantigua from the Independent Lens documentary, The Three Chaplains. This title, Chaplain, I would assume that a number of you have heard it before, yes? Yes, yes sir. But probably in different contexts. For example, you may have heard about a chaplain who serves at the university. Who's heard of those kinds of chaplains before? Right? Very good. Who's heard about chaplains at hospitals and hospices? Yes, indeed. What about chaplains at the prison? Mm-hmm. I hope it's not from personal experience. Okay. So yes, you, so you see that a chaplain is an individual who is a clergy person that works at an institution. And obviously, they're military, right? Exactly. So... Each of you are going to have in your squadron a chaplain. And no matter what tradition they may come from, we all follow the Air Force Policy Directive. I want everybody to read that together, loud and proud. Everybody got it? Yes, sir. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. Captain Lantigua is a Muslim chaplain in the United States Air Force. He's featured in Three Chaplains, a documentary released in November 2023 by Independent Lens. A few months ago, I wandered through the impeccably maintained Arlington National Cemetery, and I couldn't help but notice the diversity of symbols on headstones, reminding visitors like me that our nation's armed forces reflect our nation's religious diversity. The lived spiritual experiences of the more than one million men and women in the U.S. armed forces is nuanced and complex, especially for those who belong to traditions that are in the minority. Before we get to Captain Lantigua's story, something he said got me wondering. How the military and the men and women serving as chaplains serve both the church and the state. Surely the founders had thoughts about this, so I started poking around. And it turns out before the Constitution was drafted in September 1775, George Washington wrote to Benedict Arnold with instructions about the spiritual needs of men taking up arms. Quote, as far as lays in your power, you are to protect and support the free exercise of the religion of the country and the undisturbed enjoyment of the rights of conscience in religious matters with your utmost influence and authority. A year later, George Washington issues General Orders of Saturday, May 16, 1776, calling for a day of rest and chapel attendance with, quote, their respective chaplains. Now, respective chaplains is a signal that Washington understood and recognized different beliefs. But what did that look like in the military? And how did the state calling for chapel time impact the institutions of religious life? 
That question led UC Berkeley historian and author Dr. Ronit Stahl on a deep quest into the National Archives in Washington, D.C. She combed through carbon copies and dusty boxes filled with old typed correspondence between civilians, the military, and religious organizations. And she pieced together a complex story that she tells in her 2017 book, Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in America. And it starts like a mystery. Leonard Shapiro was a Jewish soldier from Chicago, and he was killed in France in World War II. Now, when he was killed, he was in a unit that had a Catholic chaplain. And the chaplain, um, one of the chaplain's duties during the war was to write to the family members and to assure family members basically that their um, their sons, their husbands, um, you know, just their family members, they were generally men, um, were, were treated respectfully um, when they died. And that meant invoking religion. So uh, his chaplain wrote a letter to his mother assuring her that he had gotten all Catholic rights because the Catholic chaplain had assumed Leonard Shapiro was Catholic. Now, his mother was aghast because he was Jewish. And so this was anything but respectful. And this opens this window into thinking both about how religion worked in the military, but also the assumptions people made, because this was a then a conundrum, and his mother was deeply upset. Um, she goes through the chain of command to try to figure out what had happened to her son. And eventually, it's the World War II chief of chaplains, William Arnold, who kind of works then down the chain of command to ascertain what occurred that led this chaplain to assume he was Catholic. Because I should note for listeners that um, one of the tricky things about religion in the military, and there are many tricky things, but um, their draft cards, for example, during World War II did not ask about religion. So there wasn't like a national roster of everyone's religion, but there were dog tags um, if a soldier had their dog tags. And so the chief of chaplains asks, like, what was on his dog tags? And at the time, Jews had an H on their dog tag for Hebrew. Like, wouldn't you have known this? Um, and the the chaplain, basically, his mea culpa is that he'd gotten a list of the dead and he was sort of going through them. And he assumed that Shapiro, with the O at the end of the name, was an Italian last name and that Leonard Shapiro was an Italian Catholic. And that tells us something about American assumptions about where people grew up and how they understood the world, that this chaplain didn't have much exposure to Jews. So Shapiro wasn't obviously a Jewish last name and instead was, uh, to him, sounded Italian and therefore Catholic. And so the ways in which people could mix up who people were and religion became the way people were known or not known, um, understood or misrepresented. And this meant a lot um, to families. And so I think one of the reasons this story stood out to me in the archives was because of the way it involved ordinary citizens. Rose Shapiro was an immigrant woman. Um, there's no evidence that she was otherwise you know, engaged with the military or talking to high government officials. And yet the news of her son's errant kind of burial and death rituals led her to engage with the government and led the government then to think about what its procedures and processes were. What unfolded as this 
as this investigation takes place? So she works through the Jewish Welfare Board. And what that means is that at the time, uh, religious groups kind of had these intermediary groups that were the interface with the government. So Rose Shapiro contacts the Jewish Welfare Board, and they in turn are lobbying on her behalf with the military. And what I could see in the archives were the letters, um, first the letter from Rose Shapiro to the Jewish Welfare Board, and then the correspondence between the Jewish Welfare Board and the military as they worked out who was responsible, what happened, um, and eventually then figuring out who Leonard Shapiro was, um, redoing his funeral effectively. So um, he he had Jewish uh, burial rites rather than Catholic ones, um, assuring his family that it had been corrected and ensuring then that there were messages going out to chaplains about how to you know, make sure to check dog tags, to make sure to check lists, um, to not make assumptions about who people were. Um, and reinforcing that it matters how soldiers are cared for um, in life, but in many ways, especially in death. And that is this moment um, where religion and the government and the American public really um, intersected and came together. And it was also seen in many ways as part of, you know, its respect for citizens, its respect for soldiers, but also respect for religion itself, um, that people should be buried in the manner that they would want we can imagine how devastated, as you said, Rose Shapiro was, but then also presumably how embarrassed the chaplain was, like his own contrition in his letter, like explaining what had happened. Basically, yeah, there's confusion. Confusion reigns during battle. And yet he knew he had a responsibility and he messed up. So how could he fix it? And that meant also then finding a Jewish chaplain to help then repair. Today, Roni, there are a lot more religious identities in play in our U.S. armed forces. That's right. And I actually think the history of dog tags does a lot to tell us um, both, again, about religion in the United States, but also about how the state sees religion and what it counts as religion. Dog tags were effectively a military innovation that began when the United States was in the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century, when chaplains realized they needed more information about the soldier, the, you know, deceased soldiers and how to bury them. And so there's a chaplain who suggests that men wear a metal tag that identifies their religion, pretty clearly marked along with name, serial number, blood type, but they're marked with these abbreviations, P for Protestant, C for Catholic, H for Hebrew. And this is tricky because in part, it means anyone who's not Catholic or Jewish in the World War II military was Protestant. But not everyone was actually Protestant. We can see this in the archives as people want other options. So um, Latter-day Saint soldiers want to be able to say we're LDS, not Protestant. But they were considered Protestant by the military in some way. So there are petitions, and particularly after World War II, um, there are petitions organized by Japanese Americans to try to add a B for Buddhist. Other people want an O for other, at least indicate that I'm not Protestant or Catholic or Jewish or an X for none. And the big concern by the post-World War II military is that it's going to get way too confusing. And they know that there are more religions than these three-faiths of Protestant, Catholics, and Jews. People are offering these suggestions about what could be done and often making 
arguments about, you know, this is what it means to be American. We uh, believe in religious freedom and religious pluralism. You have to allow people to mark their religion. And yet the military is, is, again, unsure from sort of a management and logistics perspective. And one of the arguments made by um, the Army Chief of Chaplains after World War II is like, there are over 250 religions in the United States. Like if we go by every denomination, like what on earth are we going to do? So, you know, there's lots of arguments happening in the late 1940s and 1950s. There are petitions, there's lobbying, uh, congressional representatives and senators, you know, weigh in. And eventually what the military decides to do is basically say, fine, people can identify in the way they want. And everyone gets 18 letters. Like you can spell out what it is you want. So you can spell out, Jewish or Latter-day Saint or Episcopalian or Adventist um, or eventually um, Muslim or spiritual or Wiccan or, you know, many of the other religions that are now recognized. But I think it's emblematic. Um, Sort of this question of how do we mark religion on dog tags is significant because of the way it helps us see um, how does a state note and mark religion and that religions are pressuring the state to recognize them. It matters to religious groups. It mattered to Buddhists, for example, to be recognized by the military. And that was a sign of being American. Um, So this was a way to show that they were American. And it forced the state to move beyond a Protestant, Catholic, Jewish America to recognize that there was a broader array of American faiths that soldiers wanted to be recognized. Getting the government to acknowledge you as a legitimate representative voice on behalf of your constituents that identify with the tradition is in and of itself quite a political statement about power and that place at the intersection of church and state. And this is happening in a country that has a lot of opinions about the role of the state (laughs) in establishing religion. That's right. And that's one of the reasons I find the military so fascinating. If you are a military chaplain, you are an employee of the military and thus of the American government. Um, So you are paid to be a clergy person. Um, And that, you know, has been contested over time, for sure. The military has changed how it works, but has held on to selecting its own chaplains. And that is a process that has developed over time. There have been chaplains in the U.S. military since the American Revolution. And the military is open to the idea of other chaplains, but very wary at the time of making a decision itself. They really want authorization from Congress. Congress, some people in Congress are like, the military can just make this decision themselves. What do you know? What do we need to be involved? But there are legislators who get involved. And finally, what happens is there's a bill that passes during World War One called the Chaplains at Large Bill, which um, creates the a legal foundation, the statutory foundation for having um, Jewish, but also Adventist, LDS, Eastern Orthodox, and Salvation Army chaplains. And that really opens the door of the military to religious pluralism. It's not that it's the first time there were ever people who weren't Protestant or Catholic, but it is the first official government move to statutorily open the chaplaincy to a range of faiths. But as you just heard, it's demarcated and limited to certain faiths. So it's a step forward, but it's not fully open yet. 
Dr. Ronit Stahl is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley. She's also an affiliate of the Religious Diversity Cluster of the Othering and Belonging Institute and the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion. Her book, Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America, was published by Harvard University Press in 2017. To listen to our full conversation, head over to interfaithradio.org. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. (laughs) 